0: If you're, um, if you're new here, then um, we're happy to pay for your medical bills for your hearing. Uh, what I was about to say is this, feel, this feels like the, the weekend that, to me, that, that everyone's kind of groggy, kind of coming out of your holiday coma, right? Um, there's been a lot of parties. There's been a lot of visiting family. There's been a lot of just interruption uh, to our routines, which I always love. Um, because we've been interrupted really by stopping to think about the fact that, that Jesus entered into space and time, that he took on flesh. And even here in our series at church, we've taken a break. We've been interrupted from our, our normally um, scheduled programming um, in Romans. We stopped and we focused on Jesus coming. We focused on the incarnation. But this morning, we're going we're gonna to pick back up with that. We're going to pick back up with Romans And I would love to be able, since we've taken a break, you know, it's been, I think the last time we were in Romans together was the the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And so that's a pretty good break. I would love to be able to recap everything that we've covered in Romans. All of those sermons are there for you, as always, online if you want to go back and listen. Um, I can't do that. I couldn't do justice to Romans in a 30-second sound clip. Um, I don't think Paul or God would be happy if I tried to do that. But I do want to just give you just a little tidbit of what we last covered together, because I think that Paul is kind of continuing, of course he is, he's continuing an argument, he's also continuing his thought, especially from this last passage that we looked at. Um, We're in Romans chapter 10, and um, when we were together last, what what we saw is Paul's really good, he's a good theologian, but he's also a pretty good writer because he's always anticipating what question is going to be asked next. And you see this over and over again in Romans, that he's always kind of, he's anticipating as he, as he explains something, he's like, well, this is what they're going to be thinking next, and usually he answers it. And last time, what we saw is that he realized his readers are going to be asking the question, now, wait a second, I mean, all of this sounds amazing, and it's starting to make a lot of sense, but what about the fact that the Jews had been waiting for the promised Messiah forever, right, and... Then he comes, and you're saying that Jesus really is the Messiah. Why aren't more of the Jews actually following after Jesus? And this is some of what Paul is unpacking for us in the last passage and in this passage today. And and basically, his answer to that question, um, to put it really simply, is this that they were not following Jesus because their own goodness, their own morality, their own observance of the law, what we're going to talk about today, their own righteousness was actually getting in the way of them accepting Jesus. That what Paul said as he quoted from the Old Testament is that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and he is a rock of offense. That when you meet Jesus, what he is offering you is utter and total grace. And you think, well, everybody wants that, right? And what Paul's saying, no, that grace is really, really difficult for us to accept It offends us. It offends our own sense of goodness. And so he ended that section by saying, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness for all who believe. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. It's printed there in your bulletin for you. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 5 and going down through verse 13. This is God's Word. For Moses writes about... For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. This is um, God's Word, and for centuries, Christians have gathered around it because we want to know who God is, and we want to know who we are, and this is where we go to find that out, and we know that God has given us this Word because He loves us, and so Let me pray and ask that he would help us to understand. Heavenly Father, we we ask this morning very simply that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, that in our minds and in our heart that we might comprehend what it means that if we confess, and believe that we will be saved, that, that this salvation is very near and very close. Father, I pray that You would allow us, as Your Word always does, that You would allow us to, to look at our own hearts, that You would allow us to examine ourselves, that You would bring conviction where we need to be convicted, but ultimately that You would lead us to Jesus, that we might see Him and all of His beauty and all of His glory and we ask this only in his name. Amen. Well, um, at the beginning of a new year, I feel like inevitably what is sort of thrust upon us is that we're it, kind of from all sides. We're sort of told what you need to do is evaluate your entire worth and existence based on how you lived last year, and then you need to make promises and resolutions to do it differently this year, right? And I'm sort of a Probably in my heart, I'm a a bit of a contrarian, so I've always kind of looked at the coming of a new year and the making of resolutions. I've always looked at it with a little bit of cynicism and sort of, but I feel like the older I get, and maybe you feel this too, the older you get, the more responsibility you have, the more you see how many things you do wrong and how many things that are left undone. I feel like the more that I I feel that urge to want to listen to all the voices that are saying, you can do better than that, right? Um, Why don't you make a list, and and, and this year, you know, you're going to do it. And there's lists all around us, right? There's lists on how to eat better. There's lists on how to work better. There's lists on how to be smarter. There's lists on what we need to read this year that was written last year. There's lists on what we need to read that we've never read because we never read that in, in high school, those books that we missed. All of these things begin to pile up on us. And... I don't know. I I start to feel that urge that I want to be better, right? I I did the run on New Year's Day. Many of you were probably out there too, right? And um, we know that in January, gyms love January because their um, membership rises by about 40% on average. And of that 40%, 80% flake out by week two of February, right? Some of you, I know, probably just this week got a new gym membership. I'm sure that, that you'll be in the 20%, you know? I'm sure that you'll be the ones who stick it out. So I was reading an article in the New York Times about this phenomenon and just sort of about this desire um, to make resolutions and to be better people. And it wasn't a great article, but there was one line that, that stood out and stuck with me. The author said this, the idea that we can transform ourselves is deeply ingrained in American culture. The idea that that I, if I just set my mind to it, it, I can transform myself, that that is what American culture in many ways is built upon. That's what we're founded upon. This is what we hear from when we're little, that you can do anything that you set your mind to, and it's a huge lie right I would go a little further and say that the idea that we can transform ourselves is not just deeply ingrained in American culture I think that the idea that we can transform ourselves is just deeply ingrained in humanity It's what we want to be true and so often resolutions are so attractive to us because we we just keep messing up right but even, it doesn't matter how much we keep messing up, we don't want to give up on the belief that we, in and of ourselves, can transform ourselves. That we can be better. The, the idea of starting over, the idea of getting another shot, the idea of thinking that if I just had one more chance, just give me one more chance and then I would finally get it right. It's, it's appealing to us. But it also starts to feel very much like a fool's errand, doesn't it? If we're honest, then we'd have to say, you give me one more shot, I'm probably, I'm probably in and of myself, I'm not going to transform myself. I'm probably going to mess it up. So I want to ask you this as we, as we begin to think about this passage. What if our desire to constantly transform ourselves? what if our desire to resolve to be better than we currently are, and we all want to be, and we... What if that desire is telling us something about how God made us? What if that desire that's built into every single human being, however they might define it, we'll talk about that a little bit today, because we all define that somewhat differently, but we all want to be better than we currently are. What if that desire is telling us something about how God made us, about how He wired us? What if the desire for for wholeness, don't you want to be whole? What if if that desire for wholeness is there because we were made to be holy? What if it's both, I think as Paul is going to show us today, what if it's both that desire is much closer and much, much easier than you ever imagined, and yet also in some ways much, much more difficult? I think that Paul... I think that God in this passage is speaking to this. And I think for us to understand it, we have to start talking about this word that Paul uses over and over and over again in this section, and it's the word righteousness. It's this word righteousness that he uses over and over and over again. And I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, the wrong righteousness, then I want to talk about the right righteousness. But the word itself is kind of one of those words that, I don't know, I mean, it's a Bible word, right? I mean, let's be honest about how we feel about Bible words, that we usually have a few reactions to them. Some of us just completely just shut down because maybe the Bible is very foreign to us, and we're coming into church for the first time, and we hear a word like righteousness, and we're like, nobody talks like that. What is that? And others of us, we... We've been to church our whole lives, and words, and Bible words, are kind of part of our, of our everyday vocabulary, and we sort of start to grow so accustomed with our own definitions of them that we maybe just kind of forget. Like, what does this really mean? When Paul talks about righteousness, what is, what is this righteousness? I, w- I want you to think about it in this way. This, I want you to first of all just go go with me down this road for a minute that the word righteousness is a word that is incredibly relevant to every single human on the face of this earth, whether they are religious or whether they are irreligious, whether they've gone to church every Sunday of their life or whether they've never set foot in the door, whether they would call themselves a, a true believer or whether they would call themselves an agnostic, that this word righteousness is a word that is relevant to every single human being. And I would say it's relevant to every human being because it is at the heart, it is at the very root, it's a very, at the very core of what every single person actually is longing for. That, that, that what every person, this is a bold claim, right? That every person on the face of the earth, what they are actually longing for, what they actually are wanting, is Righteousness. There's a way in which I think keeping the big picture of the Bible always kind of in the forefront of your brain kind of helps you to see this. And I think that's a good practice to to always kind of step back from individual passages and go, what is the story of Scripture all about? And I think that when we step back, um, what we find is that the story of Scripture not only tells us about who God is and who Jesus is, but also tells us who we are. It gives, us, um, it gives us an anthropology. It tells us what is wrong with man, right? And when we step back and we look at this big picture and this story, what it tells us is that we, if you want to understand who man is, who men and women are right now, today, in 2015, that what we first of all have to know is that wh- why we were created, who we are. And we have to know, if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, that you and I were created by a holy, utterly holy, and perfect God. That there is no darkness in him. That he is pure light. And we were created to be with him. That you go, What is the purpose of man? Like, what is the purpose of our life? We were created by God and for God. We were created to be with him, to live with him in joy and peace and in harmony, to walk with Him in the cool of the day, to talk to Him, to see Him, that that's what you and I were made for, that we were made, we were made for glory. But as you know, as the story goes on, that our rebellion against God, when we say to God, I don't want you to be God, but I actually want to call the shots myself, that I want to sit in your seat that there was a cosmic separation between God and man. And that cosmic separation, no man or woman from the seed of Adam could ever correct. And the rest of the story of humanity is really, I think it's very fair to say, it's the rest of the story of humanity, is humanity trying to get back to that spot. Trying, that, that, that what they're longing for is to be right with God again. That I want to be able to stand in His presence. I want God to be able to look at me and say, I love you and you are good, right? That we all want to be congratulated. That we want to be told that we're worthy. That we try to do that in all of these different ways. I think that all of our longing for perfection, all of of our longing to do a good job, all of our longing to make money, all of our longing to be praised for being a father or a mother who actually is good. All of this is a longing. It's, it's telling us something about righteousness, that we want to be righteous. And I think it's built into every single human being that we all long for this, even though we might look for it in a different way. So what does it look like to be Righteous. What does it look like for you or me to be able to stand before God? What it looks like, the Bible defines it, to be righteous is this. is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. That means, let's break that down, that means at every single moment, every single millisecond of your life, You have always and only directed it towards God and loving God. Oh, and you also loved your neighbor as yourself. We're about four days into the new year. How are you doing, right? How are you doing with God's standard? How in the world, if we really break this down, if we really think about it, how in the world can you possibly accomplish this How is this actually possible? And to put it really crudely and really simply, it, the only way it's possible is that either you do it or somebody does it for you. Either you do this, either you accomplish this, or somebody has to do it for you. There are no, there's no other options, right? Those are the two options available. Well, Paul talks about trying to do it ourselves is what he calls a righteousness that is based upon the law. It's a righteousness that is based upon the law. I would simply call it the wrong righteousness. And there's a quote on the front of your your bulletin. Fleming Rutledge, I think, sums this up um, pretty well by saying, how can I survive the scrutiny of a righteous holy God? How do I survive that? He sees everything. He knows everything. He saw what you you thought this morning or last night. He sees it all. How do I survive the scrutiny of a righteous holy God? How can I ever be free from anxiety about not being good enough? Isn't everyone asking that question? How can I get past the anxiety? You felt the anxiety of not being good enough as you maybe walked into your parents' house over Christmas. You felt the anxiety about maybe not being good enough as you, as you did look back on this last year and you realized, I have totally messed it up again. How do, I, how do I survive that? How can I ever be free from the anxiety of not being good? Well, the wrong righteousness, it says this, that every attempt that we make to raise our rating by our own effort, Paul calls righteousness that is based upon the law. He's talking about pious achievements that can be measured. Okay, these are all good things, right? They're things, but, but, he's, but he's saying if we use them in order to raise our own rating in God's mind, they, they become things that are the wrong type of righteousness that actually begin to condemn us. And what does he say they are? It's talking about deeds of charity, hours of service, frequency of prayers, numbers of religious experiences, amount of ties, intensity of emotion, quantity of tears shed, fidelity to spiritual discipline, all of it righteousness according to the law, all of it useless for establishing merit in the sight of God. If you want to make some people really angry in Greenville, South Carolina, Go and watch all of those things. Go observe people who are most ardent at doing those things and say to them, did you know that those are all useless in the sight of God, in the sense of establishing merit before Him? We could talk about people out there. What about us? It's, I think it's hard to grapple with the fact that even our best days, even our best days cannot establish merit before God. Why? Because His standard, if we think that they can, we we have grossly underestimated what His standard is. That His standard is far beyond that. That it's far beyond a few good moments. It's far beyond a few good thoughts. It's far beyond a few good deeds. It's far beyond whatever it is that you've been praised for. I can guarantee you it is far beyond that. This is why it's so tempting for us to do what in its place? is to redefine the standard. Right? is that we see see God's standard and we say, well, I want to redefine it so that it's attainable for me. Rutledge goes on to say this. This isn't printed on your bulletin. He goes on to say, we can alter these standards to suit ourselves, thus guaranteeing that we will always be on the right side of the law. The variations are infinite, right? That I I want to tweak... What it means to be righteous so that I always fall into the category of what I think it looks like. The variations are infinite. We can measure our worth and other people's worth by fashion, by educational level, weight and fitness, taste in music, degree of hipness, and a thousand other things. We can add onto that list infinitely. And what, what Paul is accusing, this is what Paul is accusing so many of his friends of doing. And he knows it very well, because this is the way that Paul lived the majority of his life, right? That he knows what it, what it meant to take the law of God and to tweak it in such a way that Paul thought that he had attained it, that he had done it, as he had done it, he even said it in his own words, he had done it as good as anybody possibly could. And then he goes on to say, "But all of that I count actually as rubbish as garbage compared to knowing Jesus." And what he was saying in that, he was saying that none of that established merit, that none of that actually, in fact, I think what Paul would go on to say is that Paul would say that all of that began to actually work against him. Because he did not want what Jesus was offering, that he wanted to be his own savior. And Jesus had to knock him down and blind him as he was going on that road to Damascus, right? Right? I think this is why when we come into this place that what we're so careful to do, that what we always have to remember is that we have to remind ourselves that we are not the good people, right? That we don't come here because we're good. That we don't come here and we don't worship God because we are righteous in and of ourselves. That we don't do this because we somehow think that this is gaining merit in the sight of God. That we do this, we come here because we, we are people who actually realize how far short we fall. That we're people who actually realize how desperately we need mercy. That we've actually looked at ourselves and we've looked at society around us and what we've said is like, I'm actually worse than them. The church doesn't do that very often, does it? It's always pointing the finger out there. Instead, the church should actually be ones who actually say, I've looked at my own heart and I realized everything that's out there that I hate that is so evil, I have actually seen it in my own heart and my own thoughts, and I'm here because I desperately need a righteousness that does not come from me because I cannot produce it on my own. So we say that this is something that religious people try to do is that we try by the wrong, we try to attain kind of the wrong righteousness, the righteousness according to the law. It's very tempting to religious people. But I said that this is also what irreligious people or non-religious people are longing after as well. And you might hear that and you go, well, I I look at people who, you know, there's people out there who don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with His law. Are you saying, you're saying that they're trying to attain righteousness as well? I would say absolutely. I would say that they're after the same thing that you're after. They're just going about it in a different way, that they're redefining the standard because what they want is they want to be, they want to be worthy. They want to be good. They want to be righteous. I love, um, many of you know the name Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a, is a pastor in, in New York City, and he's been there, I think, about 25 years now, a church called Redeemer, Prez, and written a lot of books, all that kind of stuff. Um, approve of him. And um, that's what Brian Haybig would say right there. We're pro Tim Keller. Wouldn't he say that? Uh, and he, it, it was really interesting. When he first went to New York, there weren't a lot of people doing, there weren't a lot of people like going to New York to plant churches because it was really, really difficult to do because everyone looked at New Yorkers and they said, these are people who are just, they're, prodi- they're the prodigal sons in the sense that they're the ones who've taken their inheritance and so they're running away from God constantly. And he was scrutinized when he went there, and he still really is in a lot of ways, because the way that he addressed a lot of New Yorkers, that he addressed them as people who were really legalists. And people were like, why would you address New Yorkers as legalists? They don't want anything to do with God's law at all. That they're, in fact, quite the opposite. They're running away from God. And in fact, what you should be doing is shaming them for the ways that they're sinning. And instead, he was actually really talking to them about the ways in which they're trying to attain something that they could never attain. I read an interview, again, just recently with him where he said, he said the same thing. He's, he continually responded, these, peop- these are people who are desperate to show that they're worthy based upon what they do and what they accomplish. They want to be accepted upon merit. I saw another example of this, um, of those who would typically be called irreligious or non-religious who are still trying to attain righteousness. I saw the movie Wild recently, um, Reese Witherspoon, and it's based upon a memoir of a woman named Cheryl Strayed who basically had just utterly decimated her life. I mean, in every way she could with, with both drugs and also just she had a husband who loved her, but she just cheated on him constantly. And the way that she wanted to make this right was that She wanted to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, and that's what she goes and does, and that's what her memoir is about, and it makes for a good story, but there was a line in that movie that stuck with me. It's when her ex-husband, the last thing that he says to her before she starts this hike is he says, I wish you didn't have to walk a thousand miles, and he pauses. and She says, go on, say it, but he doesn't, but we know what he means. I wish you didn't have, I wish this wasn't the way that you had to measure yourself and measure up. We all do it. Right, We all create different ways of measuring up. And the wrong righteousness will always put the burden back upon your shoulders. And you may be a good little Pharisee, you know, and you may be for a while that you'll do really well. And it'll puff you up. And you'll keep its commands. But when you lay your head down on your pillow, you'll know that there's always more to be done. You'll know that even though people look at you and think that you've measured up somehow and you've done well, that you'll know that there's still more. And it will never be good news to you. This is what Paul does so brilliantly. is He brings us to the point where we're scrutinizing our own sense of worthiness. We're scrutinizing our own sense of righteousness so he can tell us What is good about the gospel again? Why it is good news. And he says that there is another kind of righteousness, and this is a righteousness that is based upon faith. And it is so easy, and it is so close, and yet it is so hard that there is a righteousness that is based on faith. And he says that you don't have to go up into heaven to get it. You don't have to go down into the abyss to get it. In other words, you don't have to do this grand thing. You don't have to walk a thousand miles in order to get it. It is so close. It is so near because it is a gift and it is utterly and absolutely free. And we have the hardest time with that. We have the hardest time with grace because it means letting go of my own righteousness. It means letting go of the kingdom that I have been building my my whole life. That it's so easy and yet it's so hard. Why weren't more coming to Jesus? It wasn't because they were so sinful, right? I mean, if you watch the life of Jesus, He shows us this over and over again. It's the most sinful people that come to Jesus. They flock to Him. They eat with Him. They want to be with Him why weren't more coming to Jesus? It was because of their own righteousness that was such a barrier that they didn't want to lay it down. And of course, it isn't just Paul that's saying this. Some might read this and go, well, Paul really had an agenda with this, didn't he? Paul really talked about this grace thing a whole lot. But think about Jesus. I mean, think about, there's, there's so many examples we could go to, but the one that stands out to me is when Jesus is really blatantly asked this question. John chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, just because it is beautiful and brilliant the way that John has pieced this together, that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. It actually was this great multitude of people, probably women and children there as well. Maybe 15,000 people were actually there. Jesus feeds them all. And the next day, there's a group of people who come looking for Jesus. Jesus. And they really just want something from him. They just want the bread. Jesus is trying to give himself to them, right? But they don't want him. They just want some of the, the trinkets that he's handing out. And they say to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 28 they say, What is it that we must be doing in order to be doing the works of God? And what they want Jesus to say is something that affirms their own sense of righteousness. They want them to say something that that tells them, well, you're doing it right now. They're asking the same question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? What is it that you must be doing in order to be doing the works of God? Jesus says back to them, you must believe in the one whom he has sent. And you would think at that point that they would go, this is amazing! This is the greatest news I have ever heard. Salvation is so close. All we have to do is believe in this one. Essentially, 15,000 people that day walked away from Jesus. It was the biggest failure of a sermon that had ever been given, right? None of them wanted grace. None of them wanted the righteousness that Jesus offered they wanted to be told that theirs was good enough. And you see, you can never resolve to be better, you can, until you can confess and believe that you can never be better. You can never resolve to be better until you can confess and believe that you on your own, can never be wetter, better. The way that we are made righteous is this is that Paul says that we simply believe in our heart, and we confess with our mouth. And what we're believing and what we're confessing is that there is one, capital O, who is better. There is one who is righteous. There is one who has clean hands and a pure heart, and he has ascended that mountain before us. And he has given us his life, and he has done what we could never do and Paul is trying to drive into our heads is that this is the best news that you have ever heard. Can you hear it? When we talked about this passage that came before it last time, somebody said to me afterwards, they said, this Christianity thing, it's a really good deal. And I say, if, you, if that's your response to hearing this, then you, that is absolutely right. It is the best deal that you have ever heard. Why can't we finally Rest in it, right? So many other voices, because so many other voices are training us daily to deny grace. Because what is ingrained in American culture is the idea that I can transform myself. But Christianity says this, you can only be transformed by trusting in the life of another. We're about to come to this table, and as we come to this table... We're going to confess our faith together if this is what you believe in. And I want to read read this confession. It's printed there in your bulletin. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. I want to read this before we we say it together. I'm not going to say much about it. I just want you to listen to it before you say it. I think this puts it about as clearly as you can possibly put it. How are you righteous before God? only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all of the commandments of God, and I have never kept any of them, and that I am still prone to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, think about that, God, without any merit of mine, I contributed nothing to this but my sin, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. What does that mean? It means it's as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. For those of you who are here this morning and you're thinking, I am way too far gone. I am way too far off. Would you hear those words again? If you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart, upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. The righteousness that comes by faith is the news that the world has been waiting for, is longing for, and it has come and it is here. It is the only true good news. It's the reason that even today, as we start a new year, our calendar revolves around the life and the death of Jesus. John Newton, the hymn writer, understood this. When he wrote this, he wrote, From all the guilt of my former sin, may mercy set us free, and let the year we now begin begin and end with Thee. Is it possible at the beginning of this year that the, 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 as you started off primarily not with promises simply to quit this or to be this or to do this or with the nagging sense of guilt and regret and shame that everyone in this room has, right? Is it possible that we start off a new year first and foremost with this resolution to wake up every morning and to feast upon the truth that you who have called upon the name of Christ are already loved, are already accepted, are already worthy. That you have been given perfect satisfaction, as we're about to say, righteousness and holiness of Christ, as if you had never committed nor had any sin and had yourself accomplished all the obedience that Christ has fulfilled. That is what the world is longing for. That is what you are longing for. And that is what has been given to you. Can you imagine how our lives would be different? Can you imagine how we would be transformed if we would believe that every day? Let me pray. Father, we believe and we pray that you would help our unbelief. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we do come to this table, um, Let's come confessing our faith together, this confession that that I have just read for us. And if this is your confession of faith, would you you respond um, by reading this answer? Christian, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and have never kept any of them, and that I am still prone always to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin, and had myself accomplished all the obedience. Which Christ has fulfilled for me, if I only accept such benefit with a believing heart, Christian. If this-